Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and I am incredibly excited to have the first Deep Dives guest back again for his second appearance and with an absolutely fantastic article to talk about today, Maxwell Bombach. Maxwell, how are you doing this fine afternoon? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, I've had a lot of fun writing for the site the last couple of weeks. Like, I feel like I've gotten to dive into some interesting guys and yeah just really excited to be back well we are certainly going to talk about those recent deep dives that you did and we will mention two of your three most recent articles at the end but of course we have to lead with today's article up on no ceilings nba.com so mm -hmm. if you haven't checked that out please check it out and then come back and listen to this and then check it out again because it's that great so <laughs> for today's article maxwell Pose the question, is Scoot Henderson a better prospect than Derek Rose? And it's a big statement to make up top, but it was it a is. fascinating dive. So I just want to get started with the most basic overview. What were your sort of first thoughts when you started this comparison? I mean, the question really is, is Scoot a better prospect than Derek Rose when he was at Memphis, which is, you know, yeah, yeah. what you led the article with, but just sort of as a general overview, I mean... It's really interesting that Scoot is pretty clearly not the consensus number one pick in this draft class. And yet you're comparing him to a guy who went number one overall. And the first three names you throw out are John Morant, John Wall, Derek Rose. That's a pretty long <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet somehow Scoot Henderson lives up to it. So what were your sort of initial impressions when you were preparing for this piece? Yeah, so I feel like Scoot's really special. And I, I felt like that last year. And um coming into the season, there was obviously like a lot of hype around him. And I just kept seeing different, like he's the best point guard since blank, or like he's the best prospect since this. Like if you took Victor out, he'd be the best guy since this guy. So it felt like it just kind of kept building up. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, I really want to dive into this because I really like got intensely into the draft space. I guess you'd say like 2020 was like the first draft that I like really started to take this at all seriously. And even then, like it's not, nearly as serious as I am now. So I feel like my gauge for prospects prior to that is like, not great. So I always like, whenever people are like, Oh, he's like, this guy reminds me of prospect Kawhi or whatever. I'm like, <laughs> I don't really remember prospect Kawhi. Like, I'm sure I saw him a couple times and thought he was good, but like, I couldn't give you a vivid breakdown of what he was. And to me, like, I, I don't want to say you disqualify John Morant from the prospect conversation, but it was different because he did have two years in college. Mm -hmm. like he did get to have a full season to kind of get his feet under him before he exploded so then it comes down to wall and rose and like i i watched a lot of john wall like john wall like i feel like people kind of forget was like a cultural phenomenon <laughs> in a sense like everyone at my college like even people that didn't watch basketball like knew the dance he did at their pep rally like it was a big he was a big deal um but he had like a lot of help at the time and even then, like, it always felt like he will. He's not quite a Derrick Rose level, like, sure thing. Um, so that that leaves Derrick Rose is like the guy that of the people that suit gets compared to. He's the one that seemed to make the most sense for like, well, is he as good as this guy or is he better? And if he is better, what do we what do we take from that? So it had been something I thought about for a long time. And I wasn't really in a position to uh, have as much access to the Memphis film as I became later. So it, it was an article I've wanted to do this whole cycle. And then I finally got to dive into it now. And like, it was 
it was a blast and it was interesting to relive like seven or eight of those Derrick Memphis games. It was, it was a different time. Moving on from that. I think, you know, one of the most important things for, just at the top of the piece is you mentioning, you know, the other players on the squads around them. And, you mm-hmm. know, I wasn't super into basketball when John Wall was an up and coming prospect. You know, he was basically him entering the NBA was right away around when I really started getting into basketball, you know, to the degree I am now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned up top, John Wall's Kentucky team had seven NBA players, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Derek Rose, had three, so suffice it to say, pretty far, pretty far from seven, and, and none of them were like Demarcus Cousins. Is the other thing. Well, yeah, like okay. if you have like a point guard, you always, especially in college, it's like you want an elite big to pair them with. And like the pros that Rose played with, like Chris Douglas Roberts rocked. Like I was like I texting the Nocians group chat during the thing, and I was like, "Yo, Chris Douglas Roberts, like I'm still holding some of that stock. Like he was, he was really good. I liked Antonio Anderson, but those guys like were not big deal." players in the nba at all and then like joey dorsey like had a, had cups of coffee here and there and that was it so the pros that rose played with were not like the same caliber the ones that wall played with well I, that's definitely true but i think you know part of the thing with john wall is you know he was sort of early in my basketball consciousness but i think people forget just how athletic early career john wall was because he sort of fell apart physically after the injuries and you know became kind of the player he is now, you know, not the all-star, all-NBA type guy he was. But, I mean, first couple of years in the league, John Wall, and obviously Kentucky John Wall. And, you know, high school John Wall had one of the most, if not the most viewed high school mixtape of all time. And, you know, you watch that and you realize just the degree of athleticism that you were dealing with when you're talking about John Wall. And yet, you ruled him out at the top of the piece because the sort of class we're talking about with Derrick Rose and Scoot Henderson is so exclusive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was just... Yeah, it wasn't like anything about yeah him being a worse prospect. It was really kind of just circumstance and the fact that like at the time it was always like Wall is not quite on the same level as Rose. So let's get into the breakdown now and starting up top with attacking and finishing the basket, finishing at the basket rather. And prospect Derek Rose was was something else, you know, in terms of his finishing. And you mentioned in the piece. And I'll just quote you directly because it's easier than me trying to riff here. But despite giving heaps of being given heaps of defensive attention. Wow, I read off the piece and still read it wrong. Despite (laughs) being given heaps of defensive attention, Rose shot 52.1% on twos as a freshman. Mm -hmm. And especially given some of the other areas of Derrick Rose's game that we will get into later in the podcast. I mean, that is even more impressive, you know, not just beyond the defensive attention, but, you know, also where defenses were focusing on trying to stop Derrick Rose and still failing. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, I was like trying to look at guys currently for comparables and it's just so hard just cause like spacing was so much worse than like, there were just so many guys in and around the paint all the time that like on its face, it's already sort of an unfair comparison. But then like you also consider like this is a Memphis team that even for the time did not take very many threes like this was a very very condensed situation um he took 8.3s uh 8.3 uh twos per game and was making 52 percent of them and like he wasn't a jump shooter at all like you you know you get your occasional like mid-range turnaround or something like that but he was really just living at the rim for the most part and he was still getting it done to this degree so like while a guy like casein wallace or somebody like that you know will shoot that percentage on on twos right now like 
he's doing it on way less volume. And even like that Kentucky team, I would wager off the top of my head is probably taking more threes per game than the Derrick Rose Memphis team was like the spacing was just like night and day different. Yeah. This one takes the, the case of most Kentucky team right now is taking 18.8 threes per game. And I think Rose's Memphis was under 17. Um, yeah. I mean, it's usually, no, they, oh, they, did, you they, say, did take, oh, they did take more. I'm sorry. They did take more. Um, but, but just like for reference again, like very condensed paint situation. And he was still just constantly getting into the paint. So now let's go to the scoot side of the comparison. And it's interesting because, you know, with scoot, I think the thing that really caused him to sort of pop last year to the degree that he did was, you know, how good he was at getting to the basket and, you know, converting around the basket. And this year, his efficiency hasn't been quite as good but i mean what you do see with scoot is he just sort of has the whole finishing package i mean he's you know athletic enough to finish over guys he's crafty enough to finish around guys and his handle is good enough that he can get pretty much where he wants to go you know pretty much anytime he's driving to the rim and Mm -hmm. the other thing which you know i talk about all the time on here is his ability to play with pace at his age. I mean, we were seeing that with Scoot last season as a 17-year-old, you know, his ability to sort of mix speeds, which is the kind of thing that a lot of young guards don't figure out until, you know, year three, year four in the NBA, right? Whereas Scoot has that already. He had that last year as a 17-year-old, and he's just developing on it this season. Yeah, he is just quite good as far as everything you could imagine at the basket. His body control is really good um he's smart with his driving angles and his finishing angles is like the other thing too like the ambidexterity but also just knowing how to protect the ball from people who are at and around the basket um i I think a lot of the results this year just kind of boiled down to the fact that um he's he's forcing some of them and i think part of that is like circumstance like it's his year it's his team um But he doesn't, yeah, he compared to Rose, like this is like the one area where I really gave gave Rose the edge is that like he doesn't have the same sort of mid-air ability to get out of it when it looks bad. Like with Rose, he could go up and be at the rim, recognize it last second, like, hey, I'm not liking licks this and kick it out. Where like Scoot doesn't quite have that fluidity in terms of his driving and like being able to dish it the last second. Like he's pretty committed once he decides he's going to shoot on that possession um but all in all like i still think his attacking game is very good he's obscenely strong for his age he gets up well um like i mentioned the body control is there i i think it's gonna like and i don't even say turn itself around because i think he in terms of like the amount of pressure he's putting on the rim and the rate he's finishing at he's doing better than like any of the guards in college would be doing in these exact same circumstances so i think he's gonna be a good rim finisher in the nba Yeah, that's a perfect opportunity to go back to the caveat that you mentioned up top, which is what I was vaguely trying to reference earlier when I was stumbling through my words about Derrick Rose versus John Wall in terms of the NBA players they played with. But Mm -hmm. Scoot Henderson is playing in a professional league against, you know, (laughs) against players who, you know, as you mentioned, were the best player on their college team or close to it. Guys who were, you know, I tend to make too many baseball comparisons on this podcast, but I'm going to do it again. Basically the quad a guys, right? Like, you know, the players who, you know, in the right situation definitely could succeed on the end of an NBA bench, but happen to currently be in the G league or, you know, two way guys who are playing their (laughs) G league assignment rather than, you know, their moments up on the big team 
that's the competition that Scoot is playing against while Derrick Rose was playing against, you know, not even power five competition at Memphis at the time. You know, it's a pretty dramatic difference in terms of the level of athleticism and the level of size in the paint that those guys are facing. Yeah, it is quite a bit different. And like, that's like part of why when I did it to just like get the best feel I could, I sort of cherry picked as many high quality competition games as I could. So it was a lot of like singling out the high major games. Like I did like a game that they lost like Tennessee early on in the season. So it's like, all right, that's when we're going to grab. It was a lot of the tournament run, basically watch their entire tournament run. Cause they, they played uh, Texas, they played Michigan state. Like they, that's, that's when they were getting their good games in. And then you get to the conference part of the schedule and it's like, all right, uh, they're, they're playing UT Arlington. They're playing, you know what I mean? Like, or they, that was their first round game in the tournament, but they play like, you know, a lot of SMU who wasn't very good at the time, Southern Miss, Tulsa, Tulane, like just not conference USA was not great at the time. And yeah, it, it was hard to, it, part of the reason I wanted to view the games the way I did is I went through chronologically just so I could see like a point A to point B type development. And like some of his early games are not good, but by the time you see him playing the, the tournament quality teams later on in the season, it's like, okay, yeah, he, he did get better, but yeah, level of competition is not particularly close and you have to really do the work to find him playing really good competition in college. So let's now move on to the next section, which is playmaking for others. And you had one of the greatest backhanded compliments I think I've ever seen in this section when talking about Derrick Rose. <laughs> he was, and I mean this in a positive way, one of the least locked in players I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I don't think I don't think you're going to see a backhanded compliment better than that anytime soon. So, well done there. But you know, I think it's a, I think it's important. The reason why you said that is basically, mm-hmm. you know, similar to the idea of Derrick Rose wasn't exactly playing against the best competition, but, you know, he didn't need to, you know, not to the degree that Ben Simmons was playing at LSU, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Eric Rose actually made significant positive impact for that Memphis team that went a lot yeah. farther than went Ben Simmons. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Went a lot farther than Ben Simmons's LSU team did since they, you know, didn't make the tournament, but it is remarkable, you know, how he just sort of floated a lot of the time mm-hmm. and yet was still as effective as he was. And, you know, granted, you know, his, finishing at the rim was sort of the main area where he put his energy in and maybe he didn't, you know, push himself to his limits as much, let's say to be diplomatic about it in the playmaking department. But there were some signs of what he could do in terms of creating for others, even at the college level. Yeah. I think like there was just a level of fluidity that he played with as a passer. That was beautiful. It was, it's like the Bruce Lee quote about being like water where like (laughs) Derek Rose could just like bend and, and go to the whims of like whatever was, happening on the court and his ability to make last second decisions was just really unparalleled. Like it's, it's the stuff that you go back and you watch and it really stands out as sort of freaky like that. Like you go back and see and you're like, Oh, that's why people thought he was so special at the time is cause like he could, he could be so close to making one decision and change his mind and make a different one. If, if a better one arose and yeah, like arose, he, I get it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, but he, I mean, like there was, there was some really good, um, positives too, as far as just his ability to make jump passes, like things like Tyrese Halliburton does look like some of the things that Rose does, right? He can get himself up in the air and it's fine. Like you don't have to sweat it. He showed some real creativity with like behind the backs, behind the head passes, no look passes, uh, his, just his timing and like willingness to try stuff 
and not be so set on well a second ago i wanted to do this like he just really went with the flow in a really positive way i think the one knock on him as a passer and it's it was way worse earlier in the year and he got sharper as the year went along um was he would really just throw some lazy passes if it wasn't like one that was going to set up an assist so like if he's driving to the basket and he has like a slick interior dish that he can make like a wraparound pass to the big or something like that. Like he would put that one on the money, but if it was just like, Hey, nothing's here and you got to skip it to the next guy on the perimeter. Those are passes that like you would just kind of lob it to the guy, not put a lot of steam on it. And someone that's quick could dart into the passing lane and pick it off. Like there was a lot of those types of mistakes in his game uh, that really just felt like things scoot wouldn't do. If we want to transition to the, to the scoot <laughs> side of this. Sure. Uh, I was going to mention one other Rose point yeah, quickly before we transition, which is just, you know, when you were talking about his finishing, you mentioned just how good he was at making decisions in the air. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because he would, you know, he would make those good decisions when he was in the air. But, you know, as you mentioned, when it was like the simpler stuff, it was like, eh, you know, I'm not gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna put the same zip on this, you know, simple hit ahead pass that I'm going to put on this, you know, behind the head, uh, magic Johnson style pass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was the little things and just like the attention to detail that was missing that could like could it was the one element of his game that was very frustrating for me going back and watching it. And I anticipated that to be something else that was like the frustrating part. And it wasn't it was like more so that than anything it was just there was there was a lot of food being left on the table as far as just giving the other team easy opportunities in transition. So now let's transition over to the scoot side of this and. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because, as you mentioned at the top, the assists and turnover percentages are basically identical. They're but so close. It's yeah, yeah. It's kind of frightening. But first of all, I mean, Scoot is doing it against much better competition, mm-hmm. and he's doing it with a higher usage rate as well. And you know, I think that sort of feeds into what we were talking earlier about. You know, Derek Rose not necessarily fully committing himself to the simpler plays rather than the more difficult ones. Scoot can't afford to make those mistakes in the same way that Derek Rose can, and you know. It's, I don't know, it's difficult to tell how much of that is just who Scoot is as a player versus the environment that he's in. But mm-hmm. suffice it to say that the windows for him to make mistakes in the G League playing for the Ignite are much smaller than the windows that Derek Rose had in Conference USA. Yeah, I just, just based on pure levels of athleticism alone, like there are so many more guys that could pick off those passes in the G League than there were, you know, playing against Derek Rose at Memphis. So um, it's... Yeah, it's one of those things where I I do think a lot of it is Scoot as a person. Like, I think he just has that in him where, like, every story you hear about his work ethic and things like that, there just is a real attention to detail. And a lot of the Scoot turnovers, like, even though the percentages are the same, are turnovers that I can live with. Because sure. the Derek Rose ones are the ones where it's like, oh, man, a coach would not would not be happy if he threw that kind of a pass during a game. Where with Scoot, the turnovers are more so like, well, the defense just really collapsed on him there. Or like, hey, the defender made a really great read and just happened to get in there. Like guys make turnovers all the time that you, you can't really fault them for all that much. And it feels like that's way more the case with Scoot than it was with Rose. Yeah, somehow for the third podcast in a row, I'm going to bring up Alondis Williams. But Yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think that's a sort of, I don't know. It's similar in a way vibe of, you know, he would try 
much more difficult passes than, you know, first of all, than he would try before he was at Wake Forest, but, you know, more difficult passes than most people would try. And sometimes that ended up in, you know, amazing plays that probably would have been tough shots or turnovers if he hadn't, you know, seen that tiny window and hit it. But, you know, other times those passes would end up in the fourth row. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing where, you know, Alondis Williams at Wake Forest was, you know, not to rag on our guy, Jake LaRavia at all, but Alondis Williams was, you know, the main guy at Wake Forest last year. And he was the main creator. Yeah. And Derek Rose was, you know, the main creator for Memphis and Scoot is the main creator for the Ignite. But I mean, he also has CD Sissoko alongside him, who I absolutely love as a playmaker. And, you know, that sort of helps. But again, I think part of it is just that, you know, there's a lot more room for Rose to make mistakes. And so, maybe that makes the highlight reel look prettier at times, but in terms of actually functional passes that are helping your team, you know, as you say, you give the advantage to Scoot Henderson in terms of playmaking. And I can't help but agree with you because again, it's higher level competition and, you know, much more difficult reads to even make simple passes because he's dealing with bigger, more athletic competition than Rose is dealing with in college. Yeah. And I think there was also just a level of, other types of sophistication and part of it was stuff that just Rose didn't get to show because teams weren't running as much pick and roll then like Derek Rose. Yeah. And this is part of why I gave him the edge also. And I is like attacking and finishing. He did so much out of isolation, like 20% Mm -hmm. of his offensive possessions where he shot were isolation. Like Derek Rose was constantly just putting dudes on an Island and cooking him. Um, but just like the way scoop plays pick and rolls and, and granted like not back then, like you didn't have a ton of like, Oh, rejecting the screen, like splitting the pick and roll. Like guys did that, but it wasn't as common as it is now. Um, but Scoot just has so many different ways of keeping defenders on their toes. Um, and I think that like, it, it just like the way he plays out of a hostage dribble, the types of uh, live dribble passes that he's able to throw consistently that like hit the target. He can throw them a great distance. There's just a a combination of a higher level of sophistication and a better attention to detail and just fewer frustrating mistakes that I I think this is a department where scoot is like pretty comfortably ahead of where Derek Rose was at the same time. I'm really glad you brought up the live, the, the live dribble passes, because I think that's a huge thing for scoot, you know, especially we'll get into the shooting later, but you know, especially since that's sort of the development area for him, his ability to make passes on the move, you know, first of all, that'll be, you know, much more open once he gets to the point where he's consistently, hopefully consistently hitting shots off the dribble. But, Mm -hmm. you know, more to the point, the fact that he's so good at making passes on the move just again, makes it harder for defenses to deal with him because they can't just, you know, lock him up at the top of the key and say, all right, you know, go for it, figure something out. Right. He's someone who anytime he's got the ball in his hands, you have to be, careful as a defense to make sure that you're not only making sure he can't get an easy lane to the rim, but also making sure that he can't find an easy lane to the rim for anybody else. Yeah. And I do think that that's one of those things that I think could come even further along in time. Mm-hmm. Cause he just continues to get used to playing at this kind of speed against this kind of competition, because I feel like he's already like last year, he didn't look totally out of his depth, which was incredible. No, in fact, he was, was like a high school age player and like, he looked all right out there in the G league. But it just feels like from last year to this year, he's so much more comfortable with like the tempo and speed of the game that I think at the NBA level, you know, God forbid, you know, he, he doesn't you know face injuries or anything like that. If he can just like kind of get his legs under him and get used to the speed of that game, I think the live dribble stuff is going to come along even further. Like, I think we're going to see him 
really sort of just sharpen that and make more of those like last second type passes and make more creative advanced reads out of the live dribble. Like the, the starting point that he has as that type of passer is really great. It's not something you see too often, uh, especially from someone who can score the way that he can. Yeah. And hammering home this point again, not that I've not hammered home multiple times already, but he's playing against pros, right? Yeah. You know, the yeah. jump from him to the NBA is going to be, a lot smaller than the jump that Derrick Rose had from Memphis to the NBA. And, you know, a lot smaller of a jump than most prospects have from, mm-hmm. you know, wherever they're playing pre NBA to the NBA, which is, you know, I think part of why the G League Ignite program is growing the way that it has. But yeah. let's move on now to the defensive discussion. And mm-hmm. this was really interesting to me because, as you mentioned up top, Derrick Rose did not have a reputation for being the greatest defender in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And yet he was a very good college defender. You know, Mm -hmm. honestly sounds a lot like another super athletic point guard named Russell Westbrook, who you (laughs) didn't mention in the piece, but you know, not that you should have to be entirely clear, but you know, the idea being that, I don't know. I mean, Russ was also a much better defender in college than he has been in the NBA. And, you know, part of that is, I think, just the difference in athleticism. But also, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, where Derrick Rose had issues with his defense was being consistent. And, you know, that went from, you know, a minor concern at the college level to, okay, he's just not, you know, putting in his focus on that end of the floor at the NBA level. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, Not trying and, is less kind than I would have been, but I get it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of those things too that like I think about a lot with NBA players is I feel like once guys stop trying on defense at a certain point, and again, I'm being really harsh with my verbiage here, <laughs> but it seems like it's really hard to get it back. Like that toothpaste does not go back in the tube very well. <laughs> once you decide like, I'm just not going to put effort into my defense. Like there's very few guys. Where I'm like, Oh man, he's just like not a very good defender anymore. And like a couple years later, it's like, you know what? He really turned it around and is, is back to being a good defender again. Yeah. Uh, so Lopez is, like, is the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Derek Rose, like college defensive film, like the early games, I'm like, Oh yeah, he's like actually all right at this. Like he, he can do some stuff. Like the, the big thing that he was good at. It's funny. Cause scoot does it quite a bit too. It's like, um, the thing where if a guy is just like dribbling and not necessarily paying attention they're like, I'm just going to go over there and take that real quick. Like he had a couple of those really good into passing lanes. Um, but the, the game that like really just kind of shook me was their game against Texas in the tournament. Mm-hmm. And he was matched up with DJ Augustine for most of the game. And DJ, college DJ Augustine rocked like people, I don't think people know like college DJ Augustine was the real deal. Uh, he was the ninth pick in the draft for a reason. He could really score, really fill it up, really shoot. Um, just had a lot of like junk to him off the dribble as far as how he could, could get buckets. And Derek Rose held him to four for 18 from the field. And like, he got credited with one block and there was another one that like the shot was an air ball and it looked like a block. And like, I don't know if like Jaron Jackson scorekeeper was working for Texas at the time <laughs> or no, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Please don't get worked up about the Jaron Jackson thing. Um, but yeah, like, there, like there, I think he probably had an extra block that he didn't get credited for during that game. And like, he just really put the clamps on him. Like he did such a good job of staying in front of him, walling him off, contesting his shots. Just nothing was coming easy for Augustine. And Augustine was like a tough shot maker, but like, the shots he was having to settle for were so tough 
throughout that entire game. And that was a product of what Derrick Rose could do. Um, and like the springiness for contest was the biggest thing that stood out was like, he stays in front. And then when he contests, like he was jumping, like he would jump to finish a shot. Like he was just really getting into people's shots. Um, so yeah, like there, there were games where when he wanted to, and he could lock in, like he was very good defensively when he wanted to be uh, off the ball. He always kind of had the speed to, you know, get into passing lanes, things you expect fast, good athletes to be able to do. Um, but it just wasn't there all the time. Like there would be moments at the point of attack. And it's something you see from great, great college players uh, offensively all the time, right? You just kind of let guys beat him off the dribble. Um, wouldn't get into the, some of the passing lanes. You would expect him to would like sag way too far off of this man for no reason off the ball. Um, wasn't super attentive, uh, tracking man and ball all the time. Just there would be times there would leave a lot to be desired, but the moments when it was good, it's like, oh, you could really like talk yourself into like, oh, he could be it it, like with Andrew Wiggins, like when Andrew Wiggins was in college, everyone's like, well, he could be a great defender. Like you could have done that same thing with Derrick Rose. Like you could have watched the right Derrick Rose college games and been like, I think he's going to be a really good defender in the NBA. I mean, DJ Augustin was a pretty solid ninth overall pick. He played 14 he years in the NBA. NBA yeah. Like yeah. he was very good for a long time, but I don't think people know that like he was so good in college. Like, I don't, I don't know that a lot of the younger fans fully recognize like that. He was an awesome, awesome college player. Like he was a you know, consensus all American. Yeah. I mean, I think he probably fell off the radar because the first four years of his career were with the Charlotte Bobcats back in the Bobcats era. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. even if you're starting 82 games for a Bobcats team, that's not exactly going to get you positive press on the, on the radar, but well, just like the type of player he was like, it wasn't very exciting. It's just like, yeah, he's like a really good, like pull-up shooter. He runs pick and rolls and like, he's not going to get you killed out there. Like, it's just like what he was not a guy that I think people really like clambered about, but he was, he was great. You don't, you don't play that long in the league if you're not great. Yeah. And, you know, especially when we're talking about at the college level, I mean, that's, you know, pretty much the best competition that Derek Rose is going to face on the defensive end. But let's now move to the scoot discussion on the defensive end. And suffice it to say, I think the discussion about scoots defense is a lot less theoretical than the discussion of prospect yep. Derek Rose's defense. Yeah. Like he's just good night to night on defense playing a professional league. Uh, great at the point of attack much better with his stance than Derrick Rose obscene hand speed, just so quick and getting into handles really good tracking the ball. Um, high level of awareness really pays attention and like there'll be one play every game. And I feel like it usually happens in like transition or early offense where a team will be setting something up and like, they'll just throw kind of a routine pass and he'll pick it off. <laughs> oh man. Like he was, he was anticipating this uh, in a time where like the defense didn't even have time to get set up. And he still saw it developing, got in there and nabbed himself a steal. Um, the other advantage he's going to have, while size matters more now, uh, he is going to be smaller. I do think certain teams are going to kind of hunt out mismatches on him, uh, but he is very strong already. Um, and the night run a lot of lineups where it's like him and Pujetter or you know him and another point guard, and he'll take the bigger of the two guards and he'll do okay. Like he has, he has no problem guarding up a little bit either. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, he's really fast. He's strong. He covers ground way better than most like traditional size point guards do. Um, can occasionally meet guys up at the rim, like everything you could want in a guy, his size defensively and like realistically expect he's already doing. Yeah. I think that's exactly the right way of putting it. I mean, 
you would like him to be six five, sure, that would be nice. That'd be you know better than him being six two. But I mean, I think the strength is really the main point for him. You know, he's not someone who's going to get shoved around in the paint like most young guards will. And so you know, I don't want him switching out onto a center or anything. But you know, as you mentioned twos and threes won't necessarily be plowing through him on a regular basis, right? You know, as long as he gets solid position, he's not someone who, you know, even bigger wings are going to be able to shove around easily. Yeah. Sorry. My daughter's losing it a little bit at the moment. So you might hear her in the background. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think he does a good enough job um, in those respects. And I think that he's the fact that he is aware as he, as he is, um, can help you because he's going to communicate like if, if teams are hunting him he's a guy who's not just going to like allow himself to be soft switched onto somebody who's going to bully him like he's going to be able to talk it out and prevent a lot of those situations and circumstances better than other small guys would. yeah i'm used to hearing people cry when they hear my voice or see my face so that's not a problem at all <laughs> yeah, but all good so let's move on now to the shooting and i want to say up top the shooting with Scoot was my biggest concern by far last season. Mine too. He has done so much to ameliorate those concerns. And with Derek Rose, you know, he was a solid shooter at Memphis. You know, he wasn't bad by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, it was pretty clear that it wasn't a significant part of his game, especially off the dribble. And, you know, that never really became a huge part of his game at the NBA level either. So, you know, granted, you know, during his first few years in the league, most guards were shooting far fewer three pointers than the average guard does now, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a important part of the evaluation to mention. But I mean, with Rose, that was always like a tertiary thing for him on the offensive end. And it never really got beyond that at the NBA level either. Yeah, like it's it's one of those things where like you can look through his stats and there's a year where a couple of years here and there. It's like, oh, wow, he shot really well from three that year. But like the volume is still so low. That it's just like, well, did, did that really matter a ton yeah. in the grand scheme of things? Like, did that really change the way that the defense guarded him or anything like that? And like, I always bring up Rajon Rondo in that particular example, yeah, like yeah, his yeah, year yeah. with the Kings, where it's like he hit thirty-seven percent. Is like, okay, all two of your attempts per game were completely wide open, and the defense was playing four on five and saying, "Go ahead, Rajon, go ahead, shoot it. We don't care." Yeah, you know, it doesn't really do that much to bend the defense if you're taking two of them a game, even if you are hitting them at, you know, a high 30s clip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and the thing with Rose, too, is like the shot was so much farther away than where it was with Scoot, just in terms of like, and like, I again, it's one of those things where like you look at the numbers and the percentages and attempts per game, and it's like, oh, wow, this is kind of freaky. Their numbers are so close. But the moment you go into the film, it's like, oh, no, like this is. (laughs) this is not the same a like Rose is shooting from closer, but B like mechanically, there's just a real dramatic leg kick at the bottom of the motion. It's way less smooth. And he is just taking some like really, really bad misses off the dribble. Like there, and, and even like in the mid range, like in from three, like wherever you want to take it off the catch, off the dribble, whatever, like there are some shots where it's just like, I cannot believe a man shot like that and then won NBA MVP like four years later. Like it's, it's very hard to wrap your head around. So yeah, the Derrick Rose jump shot. I I don't know. Like there's things you can point to for optimism. Like he was, he was fine off the catch from three, but again, he was like being left really open. Uh, The load time on it was pretty long. Like there were just things where it's like, 
all right, like you, you're not going to like totally stink from out here, but I'm not super confident in this ever being a thing that makes a difference uh, for your team. Right. Whereas with Scoot, I mean, first of all, we've seen him develop as a shooter literally just since last season, but you know, the other thing is he's shooting from the NBA line. He was shooting from the NBA line last season. He's shooting from the NBA line this season. And, you know, it looks a lot smoother. I mean, that's not really saying all that much when you're comparing it to the Derek Rose jumper, but it does look a lot smoother. And, you know, the one thing that you do mention that I want to bring up is Scoots made six of his 15 catch and shoot threes on the air. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's slightly better at pulling up from two than he was last year. But, you know, I think the big thing for me is the sample size is so small on his catch and shoots because he has the ball in his hands the vast majority yeah. of the time yeah. right well like, and, so much of his off ball stuff too is like let's run you into a handoff like let's yeah. get you ahead of steam and do this or like hey someone's top locking you so you can't do that so now you're cutting back door like he plays without the ball a good amount but the way that he plays off the ball is not just like hey they're letting him stand there and catch the ball and shoot it like that's just not something he gets to do very often. yeah he's not allowed to stand in the corner and uh look pretty in the corner but mm-hmm. you know the other thing that is different between Scoot and Derrick Rose. I mean, the three-point numbers, especially this year for Scoot, look pretty similar to the Derrick Rose numbers, but the mid-range pull-up was something that was such a big part of Scoot's game last season, and, you know, it's still a big part of his game this season, even though he's, you know, not quite at the level. I think he was at, like, 47% on pull-up twos in the mid-range last year or something ridiculous like that, and he's at 42% this year, which is, you know, a dip, but especially given how much of the rest of his game that unlocks. I mean, that's a tool that he uses rather than just, oh, there's two seconds left on the shot clock and I got to pull up and do something, right? Mm-hmm. Or the shot clock's going to run out. You know, that's that's a shot that he tries to get to as opposed to yeah. just is forced to take. Yeah, and he still is forced to take it too, though, because like he is oh, the sure. lead guy now. So of course, like it is, it is going to see a little bit of a, an efficiency dip. But yeah, I mean, the way that he can pull from two and like the way that he's like, just willingly pulling up from three to when guys sag on him or like go way under screens and things like that. Like what he's doing off the dribble, both from three, but really in the mid range, like he's hitting, hitting shots off of movement and just really making teams pay. Like if they give him any space there, um, it, it means a lot. And I think it is something where given his quickness and how he can play pick and rolls, it's an area of the court that he can get to pretty consistently. Um, and if he doesn't have space there with his footwork, with his handle, he's usually able to generate it too. Um, and like, that's just an area of the court where star players have to make shots. And the fact that he is so polished in that area right now, we're like, look at Jaden Ivy, like a year ago, like we had no idea what he could do in the mid range. Just like, he didn't, he didn't take shots there at all. Um, so yeah, the fact that he's as advanced as he is in that department is really, really encouraging. So now on to the conclusion before we move to a couple quick hits at the end here. Now, as you mentioned, it would be very unlikely for Scoot to accomplish what Derrick Rose did during the first few years of his career. But, you know, that's a lot of that is just because it's really not a good idea to bet on anybody to win an MVP before they turn (laughs) year three, 23. Yeah. Yeah. You know, while they're still 22, seeing as Derek Rose was the first and last person who was the 22 year old MVP. But, you know, I think what you mentioned, the one conclusion above all else is, you know, Scoot is a truly special talent. And, you know, when we're talking about him in comparison to, 
I mean, you ruled out John Morant and John Wall at the top mm-hmm. for the comparison. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of people who don't really understand what kind of prospect Scoot is because he's like, why is he not the number one guy then if he's this, yeah. you know, ridiculously special prospect? And the answer is because there's a freaking seven, five alien who, you know, <laughs> is going to go number one. That doesn't say anything about Scoot. Like if you, yeah. if you put LeBron James and Scoot in the same draft, Scoot's probably going to as well. That doesn't say anything, you know, in particular about, you know, Scoot not being as good of a prospect. And, you know, as you mentioned, we don't know when the next guy like this is going to come down the pipeline. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's the kind of thing where, you know, you're comparing him to a prospect from 15 years ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah that's how rare this kind of a player is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it just they don't come around often like guys who are this polished, this savvy that also just like play with the fire that he plays with. Like the team his teammates really feed off of everything he does on the court. Um, but yeah, like guys that are this athletic, but also this attentive and care so much about how they play and put the same amount of effort into their defense as they do their offense. Like he is just such a rare, rare human being that like, I, I don't know. Like I, 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 I've been really intensely following prospects last couple of years and it's just, it's inconceivable that this is a guy that I don't have number one on my board at times, (laughs) like because of how good he is. And it's, it's just, it victors victor. It, It is what it is. But, um, yeah, like he's he's really special, and I think that in some ways, and I know that I wrote an article an article comparing him to people, but like comparing him to somebody like Derrick Rose almost does a disservice because of how much different the league is now. Where like there is so much more talent, and like Derrick Rose got the perfect confluence of circumstances. He mm-hmm. was the number one pick for a team that had barely missed the playoffs the year before, that brought in a coach that was on the cutting edge of defensive schemes. He played with a lot of defensive talent that could cover for his shortcomings and he won MVP because he just, there was voter fatigue that year. It was a pretty shallow class outside of it. He probably shouldn't have won the MVP that he won. uh, If you're going by the way that people vote most years. Um, And he led a number one seed in the East because Miami was taking it easier during the regular season. So like, and I don't say that to like diminish what Derek Rose accomplished or anything like that, but like, circumstance wise it's going to be very difficult for scoot to find himself in a better position than Derek Rose found himself in coming into the league yeah absolutely um, and I, I think that, like that is like a vital piece of context to understand because I don't want people to come back to me in three years when scoot is on like the Houston Rockets and people are like well why hasn't he led them to a one seed yet if he's better than Derek Rose and it's like Derek Rose like really had until the injuries until it went very very wrong it did go very very right yeah, it's hard for him to have it's hard to even imagine a better situation for him to have ended up in, right? I mean, he was the offensive engine for a defense first team that, you know, won most of their games, you know, on the strength of their defense and Derrick Rose doing enough on the offensive end to carry them, right? Yeah. You know, that's the kind of situation where I can't even imagine what team Scoot would go to right now that would be the equivalent of Derrick Rose on those Chicago Bulls. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough. And like, especially just given sort of the layout of like where picks are in the league right now, like I like maybe a Toronto, like you just look at this or like new Orleans, possibly like you just look at the teams that uh, on tankathon and it's like Houston's not in a position to 
you know, like I like you just go down the list and it's like I don't see San Antonio getting there that fast. I don't see Detroit getting there that fast. Maybe if maybe if he goes to Detroit and like Cade comes back healthy, makes a leap, like maybe that's a team. But even then, it's like they don't have the backline defenders and like yeah. it takes bigs a while to figure it out. Do we think Jalen Duran is going to be the same level that guys like Joe Kim know? And like Omer Sheik was like, I, I say somebody like from Chicago, like an elite backup big man at the time, yeah. like phenomenal big man paint defender for that time um like i i don't know like those bulls teams had a lot of the right pieces around him and the fit was really perfect and you just look at the lottery this year and there's a lot of non-ideal circumstances and there's just a lot of really great teams at the top of the league that makes it harder to crack through that level all right so before we wrap things up here i wanted to do what you do with your prospect overview articles and do a couple quick hits at the end so I wanted to talk briefly about the subjects of your previous two articles over on no ceilings, subscribe, check it out. And the piece before your scoot Derek Rose comparison piece was about Mike miles. And there's one thing in particular that I wanted to bring up with Mike miles, especially it's funny. I somehow managed to mention Alondis Williams on the podcast before I got to this section of the podcast, <laughs> but mm-hmm. the, Finishing around the basket is, you know, the reason that I brought up Alondis Williams. Mike Miles, when at the time that you wrote this article, the numbers are probably different now, but yeah. he was shooting 63% on eight and a half two point attempts per game. That's yeah. that's a center number. That's not a card number. No. And it's you a know, finishing big number. Exactly. And you know, that was the same thing with Alondis and why I was so high on him last year. But you know, the other thing is it's not just that he's shooting that ridiculous of a percentage. You know, he's taking 57 as of the time you're at the piece, 57% of his shots in a half court at the rim. I mean, mm. you know, getting that kind of number in transition. Okay. I get it. Getting that kind of number in the half court insanity. It's silly. It's absolutely silly. Like the, the degree to which he can pressure the rim. And I don't know, like at a certain point in the draft, I'm just like, is this guy an NBA player? Yes or no. And like, mm-hmm. if I'm not sure, like, do they have a specialty skill or something that could, could like, give them a place on a team. And it's so weird to say like it's a rim pressure in finishing for a guy who's like a six one yeah. point guard at the shaky shot. But like, it kind of is. And like the spacing environment that he plays in is absolutely terrible. TCU is a team that like barely shoots threes. Uh, and yeah, like he's just constantly being swarmed. And I, yeah, I, I just don't, I don't know. You don't see guys finish like this very often. Um, yeah, TCU is shooting 30% from three on the season, and they are 329th in Division One in attempts per game from three. And that's including the ones that Mikey takes. So if you take the Mike Miles threes off the table, then he doesn't have himself to pass to. Uh, there's just not a lot of shooters. Like when he's driving, he is getting absolutely swarmed, and he's still being this efficient. It's it's uncanny. It's very, very bizarre. And it's something that should be appreciated. I think he'd be in much better shape if he was able to pass to himself. Honestly, that that yeah. really oh, helped. He would be, yeah. Like he would, it's, his assist numbers would be higher. Like it would just be, it would be great. Yeah, and you know the other thing is the turnovers. Speaking of the passing stuff, and it's interesting because you know I think with Alondis, you know the reason is very similar in terms of being a high turnover player, but you know Alondis had more assist you know not that's really the important part i think the key there though is he's sloppier than i thought he would be 
And, yeah. you know, that's, that's the kind of thing where it can be a problem if, you know, he doesn't figure that out to some extent. And granted, as you mentioned, a lot of that is because, you know, he's playing in the kind of spacing situation that you might've expected to see 15 years ago for Derrick Rose at Memphis. But, you know, ultimately he, as you mentioned, he needs to do better from a ball control standpoint because, you know, he, he's not, I mean, I don't know, the rim finishing and rim pressure is ridiculous, but, you know, I don't think he's, I think it's fair to say that he's not special enough that if he doesn't, you know, cut down on the turnovers a bit, that's going to be the kind of thing yeah. that could land him in trouble. Yeah, he he needs to turn it over less and he needs to hit threes more like period point blank when you're a six one guard like he because he has all the other stuff, right? Like he has the strength. He has the defensive acumen. He has like that stuff that makes smaller guards stick. He's a way better finisher than you'd expect. Like all that is there. He does need to turn it over less and he needs to, yeah, like he just needs to be a more reliable jump shooter. Um, I think the biggest thing is, yeah, like his reads that he makes still aren't that advanced, which there's like, there's some hope just because he is young for a junior. Like he is the age of most sophomores. Um, But he also just kind of like weirdly gets stuck in ways that a lot of NBA point guards don't where like he'll drive somewhere and need to make a decision. And he just doesn't really know where guys are on the court. And that's the kind of stuff where it's like, you can't, can't be doing that. That's, that's got to come to an end. And finally, before we wrap up the episode, we're taking a visit to an Island where you and I remain, even though everyone (laughs) else on no ceilings has sold their condos. And in Nathan Grubel's case has burned his condo to the ground, but we're talking Terrence Shan Jr. Who was the subject of your article before your Mike Miles article. And I want to talk about two areas of development for him because I think, you know, the reason that Nathan burned down his condo on Terrence Shannon Jr. Island was because he didn't think that he'd made enough progress as a player and he was still too inconsistent for his liking. And I get that. But the flip side of that is, as you mentioned in the article, he has come a long way as a playmaker since, you know, even just since last season. And even though his percentage from distance has gone down, I mean, First of all, you know, comparing his freshman year to his senior year, he's a much better shooter than he was. Mm-hmm. But, you know, more to the point, he's taking a lot more per game than he was at Texas Tech last season. And he's taking more difficult diet of them. I mean, you know, he yeah. has a much larger role offensively this season at Illinois than he ever had at Texas mm-hmm. Tech. And, you know, the fact that he's taking more difficult threes and, you know, still hovering around mid-30s percentage-wise is actually, I think, a really positive sign in terms of his development rather than, oh, no, his percentages dipped slightly since last year. You know, he's losing it as a shooter. It's like, no, he's just taking a lot more of them. And some of them aren't going in, but they're also more difficult looks overall. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things where the team construction around him just matters so much more like last year there was a lot of mcculler there was a lot of adonis arms there was a lot of kevin o'banner like there was more guys the teams were keying into and that's not really the case in illinois um i I mean it's a little bit like teams don't ignore matthew mayer coleman hawkins or whatever but like taron shannon is the highest usage player now like he is the guy that they are running most of their stuff through and yeah the number of like guarded versus unguarded shots that ratio is like way off from where it was a year ago so now like yeah he's taking more shots he's taking tougher shots and he's taking fewer open shots so when you do all of that and you you know add in the volume increase it's just gonna be really hard 
to maintain your efficiency. Like a, a, a bit of a drop should almost be anticipated at that stage. How much of a drop you're comfortable with? Like that's a different question. Like since then he was at 34%. Now he's down to 32.2. It starts to get a little bit shaky. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think it's like the end of the world. It's not something I'm willing to write him off over. And, you know, in terms of the playmaking stuff, that's sort of similar in some ways in that he's just asked to do a lot more as a playmaker than he has been previously. But, you know, I thought he showed some decent growth as a junior last year. And this year, I mean, it's interesting because Coleman Hawkins does a lot of facilitating for that team, but you know, that doesn't mean that there isn't pressure on Terrence Shannon Jr. to do better at being a playmaker for others. And, you know, at the time he was at a 20% assist percentage and a 13% turnover percentage, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he was pretty close to even assist to turnovers for a while, you know, in his yep. earlier college career. And he's gotten to a point where, you know, he's making more assists than turnovers, which is, you know, a basic way of looking at the passing, but is a solid encouraging sign for him. And, you know, the other thing being that he made such basic passes, you know, at Texas Tech, he wasn't trying yes. anything else. Mm-hmm. He's, I think he's got, I don't know how much of it is just having more freedom at Illinois than he had at Texas Tech versus how much of it is his development. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certainly he has been more comfortable creating for others than, you know, he was two years ago. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I also think, like we talked about with Scoot earlier too, where it's a lot of it's on the go. Like a lot of it mm-hmm. now is like, while he is slashing and things like that, which before that wasn't something he was doing as frequently. Um, and I just think the types of passes he's making are, are a little bit more advanced. He's running more pick and roll. Like I think it's, I I'm generally encouraged on that front. Like I, I don't know that I'm confident he's like a better or worse shooter than he was a year ago, but I am definitely confident that he's a much better playmaker and passer than he was. That's fair. I mean, I think the shooting thing is just, he's a much better shooter than he was his freshman year. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because like he went from being a non-shooter bad. to having that be yeah, a bad non-shooter to having that be a pretty significant part of his game. Mm-hmm. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap this one up? Not really. I'm I appreciate you having me on. I, I had a lot of fun, you know, writing these articles and talking about these guys. I'm just curious with Shannon, like where do you have him currently? Uh the last couple of games since then, like the last three games, he's been pretty rough. So I'm just, I'm just not sure where I stand on him still, to be completely honest. So I was just curious if you are like still firmly in on him or if you've waned at all throughout the season or where you're at. I've waned a bit, but not that much. I, I pulled up my board to make sure I wasn't misremembering where I had him, but mm-hmm. I have him 38th now. And yeah, earlier in the season, I had him at like 31, 32. Okay. So I still think he's an early second round guy. I don't think he's a first round guy, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that given his athletic tools, I doubt he's going to drop from like the high to mid thirties to like the mid forties. Like I think he's an early second round pick, not a mid second round pick. Okay. And yeah, I mean, I've moved him down a bit this season, you know, especially after he cooled off after his crazy hot start, but I'm still on on him as an early second round guy. Interesting. All right. I'm intrigued because I think I've got him like late second or like, I don't know when we've got to redo boards again and I don't know quite where he's going to end up for me. So we'll see. I just, I just wanted to take the temperature on that. Cause I feel like he's like, he's one of the guys that I move up and down the most. It's like him, CD Sissoko. 
Um, I'm yeah. trying to think of who my other like fluctuation guys are. I feel like Andre Jackson is one of those for me too, where it's like bad sure. day. I'm like, Oh, 85th. <laughs> like, <laughs> good day. He's way higher. So yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. wanted to take your temperature on that one, but I, I appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. The really happy to have you back on, even though you aren't as far in on Terrence Shannon Jr. as I am. That was, <laughs> that was rough to hear at the end of the podcast. <laughs> Sorry to break your heart like that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not like it hasn't happened before. All right. <laughs> He is Maxwell Baumbach. You can find him on Twitter at Boards, And you can, of course, find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. And you can also find him podcasting on the Draft Deeper podcast. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson. And you can also find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback on the deep dives portion of the podcast, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. 